Hebrews chapter 10. Now, I'm only going to give you a few verses of Scripture here as a foundation to this study that we want to do today on the mystery of the Incarnation. Now, you know, a lot of people want to hear Merry Christmas nowadays. We have a president who says we've restored that. Uh, I don't know, I've always been saying it, even through the last couple of administrations, you know, so it isn't a matter of them telling us what we can say or do, whatever. But it isn't even about that, folks. It's about understanding the reason why Jesus came the way he did, when he did, and what most people are really focused, should be focusing their attention upon in, in this time and season. The mystery of the incarnation. Incarnation. It's, it's a theological term, but just in, incarnate, in flesh. God came in flesh. And uh, so I want to give you three passages here just as a foundation that uh, we find in the New Testament. Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. These are the words of the Messiah to his Father. A body hast thou prepared me. And notice it really is to God, his Father, that he speaks. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. And the only reason is because those things do not satisfy the sin issue, the sin problem. The sacrifices of animals and all, even though they are types, and this is what God had commanded for his people, Israel, to do, all of that was to point to Messiah. And then said I, lo, I come. And so this, and again, this is actually being quoted from the Old Testament. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And then, of course, there is that obvious statement in John chapter 1, verse 14, in speaking about Jesus who is called the Word or the Logos, the Word was made flesh made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only true, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, here is really a, a doxology uh, uh, that Paul gives us, which is a, a word of praise, but it's also a lesson in theology of, of God coming in the flesh. It says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. How clear is that? God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So I share those as, as just a foundation that there is a doctrine of the incarnation in the Word of God. Now, I'm sure that you've heard this story before, and probably from me, but it has to do with a father who was putting his four-year-old son to bed and having finished prayers, stories, and all the little bedtime things that a father does with his son, the father kissed his son and turned off the light. But his son started sobbing, and he said to his father, don't leave me, I'm scared and don't know, I, I don't want to stay here alone. The father tried to encourage the little boy by trying to remind him of God's presence and, 
you know, that uh, they had just had devotions before the Lord. And still the little boy said, oh, Daddy, I know that, but, but I want somebody with skin on. I want somebody with skin on. Well, that's, that's the great message of the biblical doctrine known as the Incarnation. God came in the flesh, and that, if we could just generalize it, but he came to rescue us. He came to save us. He came to deliver us from this wicked world, this evil world, this wicked generation. And since the very fall of man in the garden, mankind has lived in the midst of a perilous, destructive darkness. Now, I'm going to interject here a little commercial. And that is that uh, I'm going to throw a lot of stuff out at you that are kind of like, you know, little things to get you to want to come on New Year's Eve, which is next Sunday night. Uh, because we're going to have a service at 9 to 1230 and welcome in the new year. But I, I'm going to be doing a, a message. It's really a prophecy update. Uh, looking back at the 2017, what, what's happened and what we're looking forward to seeing happen in 2018. So... Uh, but, but we're going to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to be here until, you know, we finish from Genesis to Revelation. But we are going to go from Genesis to Revelation. So I'm just letting you know. Uh, so that's my commercial here. So I'm going to throw little tidbits out at you that, that are really just little things that draw you in to come on, on that night. But th this is one of them. Dealing with the very fact that from the beginning, when man fell, there was darkness. But that darkness was dark. Yeah, obviously it was, but it was dark, spiritually, spiritually dark. And it was so destructive that even early on in the book of Genesis, we're told the results of man's attitudes and activities leading to his demise as a race of people who had originally been created in the image of God. How bad did it get? Genesis 6, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, you know, this is, this is uh, I, I'm putting it here, it's another little thing I'm throwing out at you. We're going to talk about this. Next week. Because it says there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Interesting that the context then goes immediately into saying, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That was then. But what about now? Looking at the world we're living in today, things, be, uh, things appear to be pretty dark with a good chance of an even darkening darkness to prevail. I know that for many it may seem hopeless, and there is no way out. Of course, there are many others who would rather stick their head in the sand and, 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 and kind of hope that things pass and everything will be good when they stick, you know, they come out of the sand and look up and, well, things should be better. But there are a lot of people who, seem, who consider the situation hopeless and, and that there really is, is no way out. We look at the morality of our own nation in which there are over 1.5 million abortions taking place a year. Murder in the wombs of countless women in this nation alone. 90% of which were done because the children were unwanted and described as inconveniences. 
80% are performed on unmarried mothers. Sadly, consider this perspective. More people have died in our culture from abortion than from all the wars and criminal acts in our history. That, that's darkness. That's darkness. The politicization of, of homosexuality, promiscuity, and any number of liberal progressive socialist causes prom, uh, promoting aberrant lifestyles and, and behavior have led to the flaunting of sin in our schools, in entertainment, TV, and movies. But especially in what is called social media. So much so that it has become common to stick these lifestyles in the faces of decent moral people and accuse them of bigotry, hatred, racism, and homophobia. That's darkness. On the issue of crime in our land, a few years ago, Jay Stevens, U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, he said, what we're seeing now is not aberrant criminal behavior, but widespread disregard for the law and lawlessness. I would almost have to think that he had a Bible sitting in front of him to Matthew 24. Because Jesus talks about that lawlessness, and I'll quote that in just a moment. But Stevens was not only talking about violent crime, but all kinds of crime that come against the citizens of our country, even cybercrime. Cybercrime that affects even some of us. Our accounts being hacked of one, in one way or another. I think all of us have kind of had to experience that if we do any kind of work on, on the internet, whatever. That's darkness. People using it to uh, just to mock people or doing it to, you know, to, to lie about people. It's, it's, it's criminal. So remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 12, when he said, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And let me say that that word iniquity in the Greek is the word anomia, anomia. And it literally means without law. It says, because iniquity shall abound. People have this attitude that they don't care about the law. They live without law in their life. Because of lawlessness and it abounding as it is. I mean, we could even look at the mundane things that happen today. And you think, well, what, what's so bad about, you know, maybe running a red light? Well, the bad thing is that you're going to kill somebody one of these days doing that. And it's against the law. But people don't care. They see yellow and they go faster, right? If we can make it, I mean, you know, I don't want to talk about traffic law right now. All I'm saying is that there are other things, too. Going 60 in a 40-mile zone. It's dangerous, right? Why, why are the laws given, then, if we don't care about them? As picky as that might be, it's lawlessness. And that's society today. Because the love of many shall wax cold, which means it shall grow cold. Love has grown cold in our society. It's as if people are doing exactly what Jesus said would happen when they, you know, when he talked to his disciples and told them, you know, the, the unbelievers are going to just, you know, they, they love each other. They don't love you. The ones who hate me will hate you. 
They want you to join them. That, that's why we can't be, we have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. We need to be fully in the love of Christ. Jesus was certainly describing these days and times, wasn't he? But the world into which Jesus came was pretty dark as well. There was mass slavery in the Roman Empire. Remember when he came, the Romans actually controlled what was the known world at the time. There was mass slavery in the Roman Empire. Six million slaves, 1.3 million of which were slaves to 2,000 extravagantly rich lords of Rome that lived in the utmost of wastefulness and licentiousness. It was a bloodthirsty population which was kept entertained in arenas where people were thrown in to be ravished and killed by wild animals or even gladiators. All that was true. But closer to home, to whom Jesus came, remember it says he came unto his own. Jesus came into the darkness of his own people. A people who were always tempted to absorb into the paganism of their captors while continuing to superficially maintain their religious ways. They go to the temple, uh, I, I mean, religiously, they go to the temple and offer their sacrifices, offer their tithes. And then later on that night, they would go up into the groves and they would worship idols. They wanted the best of both worlds. You ever heard that statement? The believer in Jesus Christ wants only the best of one world. That's heaven. That's the kingdom of God. Whether we're living here or we're there with him in heaven. That's the place that we want to be. In the highest levels of Jewish religious leadership, hypocrisy ruled the day. Jesus made that very clear in the previous chapter to Matthew 24. When he said unto the scribes and Pharisees, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You go out in the streets all dressed up in your religious garb and you cry out your prayers so everybody can hear you and everybody can give you praise. But inside of you, you're dead men's bones. Inside of you, you're a whitewashed tomb. Whitewashed sepulchers, he said. The prophetic voice of the Lord had been silent for nearly 200 years until John the Baptist came and became the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And by the way, John plays a tremendous role in this story of Jesus' first coming. Read that in Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 1, and of course in Matthew as well, as well but Luke chapter 1 in particular. Isaiah 40, verse 3, is the prophecy, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert the highway for our God. There's also a reference in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. The Lord was indeed coming. 
And the Jewish people should have been excited and waiting and, and, and looking. Because he was coming in the flesh. This mystery of the incarnation is not exclusive to the New Testament, by the way. We began with three references from the, from the New Testament. But the very reason for those dark days described in Genesis 6, as well as the solution for the sin problem, which is God himself coming to earth, began back in Genesis chapter 3. And in particular, verse 15, where God is speaking now to the serpent, who is Satan. And he says to him, and I will put enmity, I will put hostility between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And I emphasize her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Her seed. Most of us should remember our biology and our physiology classes, and maybe in some cases you were advanced and went to anatomy class. Well, one thing that we learn in our basic biology 101 is that man carries the seed and woman has, a, has an egg. So either the Lord doesn't know his biology, which he does, since he made us, or there is something unique about this particular statement. Because there is no denying that this passage is clearly describing God's intention to become a man to be the instrument of Satan's defeat and doom. He speaks of the seed of the woman putting a final end to sin and Satan. The seed of the woman. Singular seed. The significance comes from the fact, as I said, that women do not bear themselves seed. Man does. But the seed itself then must be that that comes from God himself upon a specific woman. So consider, if you will, Matthew 1 verse 20. We find here a man named Joseph, a humble man, a godly man, a righteous man, a man who believed God, and chosen, in effect, to be the stepfather of Jesus. But when all of this was going on, we're, we're, we're brought into the story of, of, the, uh, of the incarnation, we're brought into this, this, this account with, with Joseph wondering about what's going on because he finds out that the, the girl, the young maiden that he is betrothed to, her name is Miriam or Mary, she's with child. And being the godly man that he was, did not want to put her on, on a spot that would bring great shame to her, or maybe even death. So he wanted to privately just divorce her from this betrothal. 
And in the midst of this struggle within him, while he thought on these things, it says in our text, Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, and yes, that's significant, that he was a son of David. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. The seed of the woman has been put into this young maiden. Joseph being in the line of David, and you look at the genealogy in Luke that brings us, and Matthew, Matthew and Luke that brings both Luke, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph and Mary together, both coming from the line of David, one from the royal line, the other representing the physical line, being Mary, be physical. Then it fulfills the prophecy that Jesus, the Messiah, would come through the line fully and completely of David. Though Joseph is really chosen as the one to be the, phys the stepfather, as it were. And if you turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 28, and I'm going to read verse 27 because it just ended up that, I don't know, it just jumped into my text here. But it says, to a virgin, a spouse, to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary, verse 28. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored. Well, and, and that's, that's a good thing because she was favored by God to be. I mean, there could only be one. <laughs> there could only be one woman. So yeah, she was highly favored. Now, I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with taking a highly favored woman and making her equal to God. Almost receiving worship today by some. Can't do that. Just read on, Luke, Luke chapter 1, and find out that when Mary magnifies the Lord, she's doing so because he's her Savior. Anybody that needs a savior is saying, I'm a sinner too. But God favored her. But everybody else that was favored in the scriptures, all the way back from, you know, Abraham, you know, or Moses, Abraham, and all the others. I mean, were they not sinners? Okay. Hail, thou art thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. What a blessing. May I ask you a question? Is the Lord with you? Okay. <clears throat> Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. Which gives us another indication of the humble heart that she had. And, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb. And bring forth a son and shall call his name Yeshua or Yehoshua. Jesus, which means God is salvation or God is become salvation. 
He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. So there would be no question then, because of his genealogies, that he was of the house of David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. There shall be no end. And then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be? This is not a statement of doubt. This is a statement of wonder. How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? The angels answered and said unto her, the, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. and The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Uh, do not uh, put too much criticism upon the King James translators to call Jesus a holy thing. Because, you see, what they had to do was make it clear from the text that Jesus was not just a man. He was also God. He was different than anyone ever born on this earth. Got the understanding here? So it's not a, it's not a you know, we're talking King James English. We're talking English from, you know, 400 years ago. 500 years ago. It, it was a statement of, of awe, in a sense, because he's different than anyone else born. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And so the revealing of the mystery of the incarnation teaches us. The mystery of the incarnation teaches us, even in what we've seen so far, that Jesus was is and will always be God. For God became a man in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus has all the attributes of God, and the scriptures teach us that he does things that only God can do. He does things only God can do. First of all, he never began to exist, and he'll never cease to exist, because he's always eternal. Consider John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Word, the Logos, was God. Maybe you've talked to a Jehovah's Witness person recently. They'll tell you, oh no, it says a God. They don't know they're Greek. There's no article there. It's just not there. They've inserted it so that they could have their particular doctrine satisfied. You, you change in the word of God, I, I, want, I want to, if a black cloud forms above you, I want to run because I don't, you know, God's going to judge that. Changing the word of God? No. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. Then they stumble and they say, well, it's God with a little g. Really? Then, you, then you're actually then believing and more than one God. Oops. Okay, I don't know why I got into that. But it's a good study. So he's God. The word was God. What was getting him in trouble with the scribes and the Pharisees and all of these religious 
people in, in his time was statements like John 8, verse 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. That's an eternal statement. Before Abraham was, you're a great hero. I am. What did he just say? I am God in the flesh. They're ready to stone him. So he never began to exist and never will cease to exist. Secondly, he created all things. If you go back to John chapter 1 verse 3, it says all things were made by him, speaking of the word or the logos. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. So he was there at the creation and he was the creator. In fact, Paul would substantiate that under the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit when he says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And by the way, that's another nugget that we want to, we want to remember about next week. The things that Jesus created the things that are very pertinent to our understanding of why we're seeing what's happening in prophecy today being fulfilled. Ugh. Okay, another little thing to whet your appetite. What do we know about Jesus? He knows all things. Proven in the book of John. Time and time again, he knew the thoughts of man. He knows all things. He has all power. He has all authority. Authority over life and death. Authority over sickness and, and disease. Authority over environment. Authority over the laws of nature. And authority over the demons. He depends on nothing outside of himself. That's Jesus. He depends on nothing outside of himself. John 1 verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life. Didn't depend on anybody else for life. He already was because he says, I am. The same thing in John 14, verse 6. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Depends on nothing outside of himself. Now, humbly and voluntarily, when he came to this earth, he surrendered himself to the will of the Father. And only in that particular respect, does he depend upon the leading of his father? But that done again voluntarily. Today he sits at the right hand of the throne of the father, awaiting the time to come for his church. And so the incarnation also teaches us that Jesus was all man. He was not just all God, he's all man. Because in John 1 verse 14, we read that earlier, the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And what John is saying is, we saw him. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw him. Well, they not only saw him on a daily basis, but Peter, James, and John saw him in the glory of his Father on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw that glory. Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, makes so clear how Jesus humbled himself to take on the fullness of being a man. When he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, 
thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You know, that statement goes a long way in, 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 in confirming his deity. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God because he was equal with God. Member of the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Was made in the likeness of men. You remember a few years back, you know, that, that little, you know, what is it, uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do? You know, people would say, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Well, read this. Because whatever Jesus would do, that's what he's telling us to do. He says, be a, a person of no reputation in and of yourself. Be a servant. We're already in the likeness of men. But Jesus was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He had to be man, to be the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He had to be man in all of his fullness. Yet he was in all of his fullness God as well. So to cover everything there is to know about the incarnation would take a considerable amount of time. Suffice it to say that the scriptures are a treasure trove of material about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who came to us in the midst of ever-deepening darkness. So much so that the prophets, like Isaiah, would prophesy the coming of Messiah, the coming of the God-man. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, can I ask you a simple question? What would that son be made of? Flesh. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, somebody gets an A+. Plus. I, I don't know who it was. Flesh. Bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. which means God with us. God with us. Two chapters later in Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, we see the condition into which Jesus comes into the world. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. I'm not going to go into the whole detail of this, just to let you know a couple of things. When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Of course, it's, it's kind of a rich prophetic kind of thing. The important thing to note is that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali would be the very center of that place where Jesus himself would be known to be coming from, which is Nazareth. 
Galilee of the nations. Well, we'll talk about that another time. Verse 2 is what is important. The people that walked in darkness. What people? The Jewish people. Because Jesus came to his own first. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them have the light shined. Jesus, who said in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world. He who walks in darkness, or he who believes in me shall never walk in darkness. I'm sorry. He who believeth in me shall never walk in darkness. Because he is indeed that light that came into the world of his own people first. And then a few verses later, in verses 6 and 7, the prophecy continued in this form, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, unto us. The Israel that has so far rejected the Lord through rebellion and disobedience, to keep them in such a darkness... For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David. That's where he's headed, to the throne of David, and only Jesus will be able to sit on that throne. And will for a thousand years in the very city of Jerusalem. And upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The incarnation of Jesus. I want to say this a couple of times because man, it, I'm still trying to get this. You know, I'm still trying to get this thought here. But the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the irrefutable proof that God will do anything to draw near to us. Man, i got to say that again. I said it twice last night too. I'm still trying to wrap my, my thought around that. That the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the irrefutable proof that God will do anything to draw near to us. And our God understands our every need. He understands our every need. Think about this. Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18. 17 and 18. Hebrews 2. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or to help them that are tempted. What a tremendous statement that is. That in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. To take upon himself flesh. 
that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Why? Because it is as the high priest that he offers himself, who is also the sacrifice lamb upon the cross, which is him being the altar of sacrifice and his blood being shed on that altar. For whom? For us. Because we can't save ourselves. And no animal sacrifice can save us. Only he can save us. And that he himself suffered being tempted because of that, because he put on flesh, he is able to help us, to assist us that are tempted. You ever run into a problem being tempted? Then you need to call upon him because he's already been there. Remember, he's been tempted, but without sin, for that very reason. Because he loves you. He loves us. Wow. Slapping myself a thousand times every day, thinking, why do I miss that sometimes? You understand? I hope I'm not alone in that. But I might be. Y'all are so good. Hey, I don't know. God knows. <laughs> But in Christ, we have a helper for our every need. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Remember the double negative there? Placed perfectly. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched which tells us we do have a high priest that can be touched, because he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, lack as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly, which means confidently, unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then we have a perfect atonement. Because of the incarnation. We have the perfect atonement for our sins because of the incarnation. Hebrews 7, verses 25 to 28. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost. I mean, aren't you glad? I, I, I think of this thought for a minute. To be saved to the uttermost. Not just a little bit saved. And the rest is left up to us. <laughs> That's absurd, isn't it? I suppose some people do think that. Because there's still people today. Who, who even in the church are saying, well, you know, I, I, I know that Jesus came to save me. But, you know, I, I still think my good can outweigh the bad. And that kind of helps. No, it doesn't help at all. Because again, the Bible tells us there is none good. No, not one. There is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not all of us. Every one of us. So when he saves us, he saves us to the uttermost. That come unto God by him. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And that's another help on our part, isn't he? That he's praying for us. 
You know, he isn't taking count and saying, okay, well, there's Charlie doing that again. Oh, boy, okay, well, that's not him. He's still praying for me, just like he's praying for you. But if I know that, and if we know that, how much more should our hearts move toward him in faith, in trust, in love, and in service? How much more? It's like we came today. We don't have to worship. We get to worship. We get to worship him. We get to serve him. What a joy it is to serve the creator of the heavens and the earth. For such a high priest became us. Whoa! I had to meditate on that a good long while last night. He became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for, their own, for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. He is truly the only true high priest. Because he doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. He was the sacrifice. And lastly, we look at Romans 8, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, or there is therefore, I should say, there is therefore now no condemnation. And I want you to stop there and just think about that statement just for a minute. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Is that not a heavy thought? Some of you probably are saying, hey, Pastor Charlie, it's Christmas, man. Let's talk about Christmas stuff. There's something about this that overshadows everything else. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Some of your translations may not have that last part. They'll have it in the margin or something. No, it's there. It's there. I have time to talk about it, but it's there. It's mentioned again in verse 4. Verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made, a, has made me free from the law of sin and death. Made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God, here it is, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not that he had sinful flesh, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Because as I look around here today and you look at me, this is sinful flesh. Do you understand what I'm saying? But when he came, he came in the likeness of it without the sinful part of it, 
And for sin he came, it says, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, for they that are after the flesh. In other words, they that have a mindset of the flesh, they that go after the things of the flesh, that they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. That's all they care about. What happens to the flesh, what pampers the flesh, what makes the flesh appreciative of these things. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit. The things of the Spirit. And then he sums it up this way, for to be carnally minded is death. In other words, to be fleshly minded, carnal flesh, carne flesh, to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And so from the scriptures today, the mystery of the incarnation is no longer a mystery. Jesus Christ came in the way by which he would be able to have a body of flesh to be able to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. And it's only in a body, a fleshly body, that blood can be produced. Jesus was not a phantom, as the Gnostics used to believe that he was. They used to believe that Jesus could walk and you'd never see footprints. That was one of the things that Gnostics would, you know, try to say, well, Jesus wasn't really a, a you know, you see him, but it was mystical. Part of the problem with the New Age movement of today, making everything mystical, over-spiritualizing things. What's well, seeped into the church that deals with these things, is, it's sad because it's not the Word of God. Jesus had to have flesh. Perfect flesh, sinless flesh, because he was the perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. It's the only way. So that body needed his blood. Because on the day that he died for us, he shed his, own, he, he shed his blood. Practically just poured out of him on the altar, the cross. Because of that, those who believe in him 